This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. By now, you have heard that the state of Colorado (laughs) has disqualified President Trump from the ballot. Well, I should say the Colorado State Supreme Court has disqualified uh, Donald Trump from the ballot. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this for a few reasons. One, on a lot of the stations that we're on, several of my colleagues have been on before me, and they have spent a great deal of time on this. So I, I feel like maybe people are a little worn out if they've been listening to the radio for the last three or four hours. Also, because there is absolutely no scenario in which this ruling is upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll get into that in just a minute. But I, I do have to comment on this because it really is so outrageous. So essentially what the uh, Colorado State Supreme Court is saying is that uh, this the, the Trump is being disqualified for a criminal offense that has neither been proven nor charged. Jack Smith could have charged Donald Trump with insurrection. He didn't. Because, look, Um, Others have said, Robert Reich and others, that Trump should not be allowed on any ballot because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits anyone who has held public office and taken an oath to protect the Constitution from holding office uh, again if they have engaged in insurrection against the United States. Now, this section of the 14th Amendment was pretty much designed with people like Jefferson Davis in mind. It was enacted after the Civil War to prevent those who rose up against the country from being allowed to hold office. It doesn't apply to Donald Trump, and you certainly can't say it applies to him without a trial. This is a huge escalation of a phenomenon that people call warfare, excuse me, lawfare, which is using the legal system to uh, wage war uh, by political means and other means. This has zoomed from a simmer to a boil in the seven years since Trump was elected. And the glee from certain people like Robert Reich, who I actually have a lot of respect for as an economist, but when it comes to political analysis, it's just absurd. And others at this decision shows that this was a move that was dreamed up, not at the fringes. You know, you remember when all those people were challenging Barack Obama's eligibility to be president because they said he wasn't born in the country? That was not being done within the mainstream of the Republican Party or the conservative movement. That was being done and led on the very fringes of the conservative movement. The fact that you see people like Robert Reich and uh, and others that are very mainstream Democrats celebrating this shows this was dreamt up at the very center of the modern Democratic Party. 
this, you know, I mean, Fifth Amendment, Schmith Amendment, right? I mean, you, you can't, there's no way this gets upheld. Even the justices in the Colorado State Supreme Court seem to recognize this, and they stayed their own order. So that's the other reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, because Trump will be on the ballot in Colorado and, and elsewhere. The court decision, which I just spent a fair amount of time reading, um, which was ruled four to three by the Colorado State Supreme Court, is so bizarre. For so many different reasons. So you probably heard the headline that Trump cannot appear on the March 24th Colorado Republican presidential primary. Couple of things. Oh, by the way, it also said that write-ins for him cannot be counted. So a lot of the folks that have been out there saying Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, so that we have to look out against a voter suppression, that we have to make sure to count every vote, that we have to make sure that people's votes counted, those very same entities, at least with respect to this Colorado case, they are basically saying that votes legally cast by qualified voters, shouldn't be able to count. A couple of things to keep in mind here. So this this theory is so batty behind the disqualification of Trump in Colorado. Essentially, it presumes that a state court has the power to simply declare a candidate guilty of insurrection with zero due process. Meanwhile, Jack Smith, the special counsel, could have charged Trump under the federal insurrection statute. He didn't. He didn't. Additionally, there is a statute that Trump could have been charged with. Smith didn't didn't charge him. Instead, these state judges have concocted this theory that endows them with the unilateral power to declare insurrection offenses. I mean, let's begin with the fact that the Colorado Supreme Court explicitly rejects that the First Amendment applies to Donald Trump and his political speech. And it continues this trend of courts and prosecutors and politicians eroding basic First Amendment protections in this crusade to legally punish Trump. It's preposterous. And honestly, you should feel this way, I believe, if you're a Trump supporter, if you're undecided, or if you're a Trump skeptic or you're a Trump hater, honestly. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to limit calls on this at 800-848-9222 to only people that are not planning to vote for Donald Trump. Either they don't like Donald Trump or they're just not planning to vote for them. Because I would love to hear how you can justify this decision. I think it's a very principled stance If you're uh, somebody that can't vote for Donald Trump, doesn't like Donald Trump, doesn't want to vote for Donald Trump, you say, look, this is supposed to be a democracy. It's not up up to the courts to decide who can be on the ballot. So the the fact that the that depriving citizens of the ability to vote for their preferred candidate by a court decision can be hailed as a win for democracy is to me just shameful. It's shameful. One of the dissenting justices in this Colorado case says that the majority ruling flies in the face of due process. It validates the makeshift adjudication of an unprecedented federal constitutional issue as though it were just run-of-the-mill state election code claim. 
uh, that's one of the justices in Colorado. This ruling um, also prohibits uh, write-in votes for Trump. I mean, it's amazing. Here's what the ruling does not do. It only bars the Colorado Secretary of State from adding Trump's name to the presidential primary ballot. It does not bar party officials from adding Trump's name to party-run selection procedures. So even if this ruling stands, which I don't believe it will, then what the Colorado Republican Party could do and says uh, they could say, all right, well, we're now a caucus state. We're now going to allow the party leaders to get together and select their candidate. We're not going to have people vote in a primary. They could pick a caucus method or a convention method. This current state-run primary system in Colorado has only been in place since 2020 anyway. So in that respect, it uh, is not really a big deal. But to think that the Secretary of State is barring not only uh, the election people from putting Trump's name on the ballot, she's barring... She's barred from counting any write-in votes for Trump. So the Colorado Supreme Court is compelling the state's top election official to invalidate thousands and thousands of legally cast votes. To me, it's amazing. And, you know, again, I don't think this is a conservative or a liberal issue. One of the law professors that I respect most, he's been a guest on this show several times, is uh, Eric Siegel. I believe he's a law professor at the University of Georgia. Brilliant guy. Very left-wing guy. I mean, I don't know about very left, but pretty progressive. And he's said that the Supreme Court absolutely is going to strike this down. And so has uh, uh, Orrin Kerr from the University of California Berkeley Law School. What Oren Kerr said is that his thinking is that on the best reading of the law, Trump doesn't have presidential immunity, but courts can't block him from being on the ballot. So what Kerr is saying, and again, Berkeley, Berkeley law professor, um, he's saying let both the criminal cases against him and his campaign go forward and let the jurors decide and let the voters decide. You know, to me, that's a very sane rationale in terms of how to handle this. So it's going to be interesting to see what the Supreme Court does. I think it could be eight to one, maybe even nine to nothing. Some people are raising the prospect of Clarence Thomas recusing himself under the new court ethics procedures. I don't see that happening. Assuming the Supreme Court does hear this case, this is going to be the first ballot access case that the court has accepted since 2008. And I every year I have a long list of ballot access cases that I hope the Supreme Court will look at, and they never do. They never do. And that 2008 case was a case that I was uh, very closely following because I was very involved in electoral politics in New York at the time. That was the State Board of Elections versus Lopez Torres. And I think the the Supreme Court got it right on the law. I mean, I probably would have ruled the way they did, but I was kind of hoping they would go the other way because it resulted in New York keeping this insane system of electing Supreme Court justices, which is just awful. But uh, so I was rooting for them to, you know, strike that law down. But I always believe that states should be able to choose their own laws for electing judges. Since 2008, they have not heard any ballot access case, any, any. So the Colorado Supreme Court majority says that it would be very bad if states were forced to print the names of unqualified candidates on their ballots. Now, 
I, I don't know who did the research for the Colorado Supreme Court because the majority in that Colorado case refused to even acknowledge that Colorado twice printed the name of underage candidates for president or vice president on the general election ballot. They did it in 1972, and they did it in 1892. And if you look at their absurd reasoning here, um, the majority opinion on page 31 says voters no longer choose between slates of electors on Election Day. Instead, they vote for presidential candidates who serve as proxies for their pledged electors. Now, this makes no sense, and I don't even know why they made this such a prominent part of their decision. There's no difference, logically, between voters voting for one set of competing slates of presidential electors on Election Day and the court statement that voters vote for presidential candidates who serve as proxies for their electors. This, this rationale from the majority is meaningless. It's clear to me they had their mind made up on what they were going to decide here, and they just grasped at any straw possible to then justify it. Two last things I want to mention, and then I want to um, I want to take your calls if you have a comment about this and you're not a Trump supporter. And honestly, at this point, I'm not planning to vote for Donald Trump. Now, things could change. I may end up voting for Donald Trump, but I'm not a Trump supporter. That doesn't make this any more any easier to swallow, because what you're really seeing here is you are seeing President Biden collapsing in the polls, President Trump rising in the polls, and Democrats resorting to these increasingly desperate and completely anti-democratic means to ensure that Trump can't run, all while they're out there insisting that they are the only guard, that they're the guardians of democracy, pretty much. This is really playing with fire. See, this is Banana Republic style, trying to get your opponent disqualified from running. This is Vladimir Putin style. This is beyond contemptible as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-9222. You know, I had on my list of uh, things that I was going to bring up. Let's say Trump is disqualified from the ballot. Let's say they found out he wasn't born here. And let's say uh, let's say he was 34 years of age. Should he still be able to be on the ballot? I think that's a much that's an interesting question, because sometimes I've run candidates for office that weren't eligible for the offices that they're running for. And I've asked and they've made it to the ballot occasionally, not always, but occasionally. And I've asked, what happens if that person wins the election that he's not qualified to do? The best example I can think of is um, I ran a fellow named John Maringolo for civil court, even though he was not a lawyer and not eligible to serve on the civil court. I thought it was another John Maringolo who was a lawyer, and it's a story for another day that's pretty embarrassing. But anyway, I, I asked the people at the Board of Elections, what if my guy who I didn't realize was my guy. What if this person wins this office he's not qualified for? What happens? Well, then uh, we have a special election. So I really do think there's something to be said for allowing everybody on the ballot, even if they're ineligible, because this is playing out in the Democratic primary as well. Uh, I believe the fellow from the Young Turks, I always get this wrong, but I believe his name is Cenk Uger. I may have that wrong, but he's a Turkish-born progressive, very big with the Young Turks, got a whole media empire. He's running a primary campaign against Biden. He was born in Turkey, 
And he's made it onto four state ballots so far. Minnesota, Oklahoma, Texas, and Vermont. None of them denied him ballot ballot access, even though he's not a natural-born citizen. This is an issue that has kept him off the ballot in other primary states. And um, what Uger told Semaphore was it's his view that it's a constitutional law question for the courts to decide, not election administrators. So, um, and Sank Uyghur. Okay, thank you. Um, anyway, the the last thing I'll mention on this front is the issue of uh, of standing. My friend Kevin, who's an attorney and a brilliant guy and an engineer who follows this pretty closely, is this is really interesting in that uh, the Colorado case on Trump's ballot access is in some ways similar to, or it's going to rely on the precedent of that Obama challenge, meaning the challenge to keep Obama's uh, Obama off the ballot because of citizenship issues, Berg versus Obama. And in that case, they basically said that Joe Citizen does not have standing to sue over qualifications of a presidential candidate. So it, it is interesting to kind of say who does have standing. Other candidates, presidential electors, nobody. So I'm curious if if you think the standing issue is going to be at play here. 800-848-9222, 800-848-922. Only calls from people that are non-Trump supporters because I'd love to know how this affects your view of the whole situation here. Lou is on Long Island. Hi. Yes, I am not a Trump supporter. Uh, but I think what Colorado has done is a travesty. It is taking away the vote of people that would vote for Trump. I mean, you just can't do that. That's undemocratic. Lou, obviously, I think you're right. And can you imagine if this decision somehow stands and spreads to other states? Can you imagine if the, uh, you know, tens of millions of people that want to vote for Donald Trump are denied that opportunity? I mean, we'd see rioting in the streets. You'd have nobody or at least you'd have, you know, uh, very few people accepting the legitimacy of the forthcoming election. Exactly, because it's being decided by the courts and not the people. Yeah, thanks, Lou. And I'll tell you what, Lou's exactly right. And you know what President Biden should do? He should write an op-ed for the Washington Post or the New York Times today and say, look, I would never vote for Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump is qualified to be president. I don't think he has the character and the standing necessary to be president. He's wrong on policy. He's wrong on ethics. He's wrong on everything. But uh, this cannot stand. And Americans will never accept the legitimacy of an election if a candidate is disqualified. So I am I'm calling on courts all over the country, including the Supreme Court, to strike down this absurd Colorado State Supreme Court law. Now, he never will do that because I suspect there's a part of him that would like Trump to be disqualified for the ballot. 800-848-9222. Mark in Kentucky, what do you think? Well, hold on. uh, All right, Mark, thank you. 800-848-9222. Melvin in the Boogie Down Bronx, what do you think? I support reparations. All right, well, we're talking about this. uh, We're talking about this uh, case in Colorado right now. 
Oh, that goes back to Andrew Jackson when he was president of the United States of North America. Well, you study the narratives. That's why you go to school for learn from those who came before you. And you refuse to to look into the narratives. But that's why I was against law for black folks to learn how to read and write till we fought for the 13, 14, 15, and 19 months and rejected or 9981. All right, Melvin. Thank you. I, again, I, I have a difficult time uh, uh, hearing, uh, making out a lot of what Melvin is saying, but I don't think it was too topical based on uh, what we were saying there. 800 848 Let me tell you what's coming up. In just two minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Marion Nessel about uh, obesity and about food and about the politics of food. Uh, so uh, we're going to get into that. And then uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk Hollywood and makeup and so forth. And uh, we'll continue with your calls on uh, this and everything else. 800-848-9222. 800 straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. The boredom overtook us. And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces Knowing what the cards were By the way they held their eyes I don't think it's possible Look at the state of America today Without worrying about the state of obesity This is particularly true with America's youth Depending on how old you are Go back and look at your graduation picture from when you were in the fifth grade. How many children in your fifth grade class would you consider to be overweight or chubby? Was it two, three, maybe four? Go look at a photograph of a fifth grade class graduating these days, and the number of children that you would find fit that description is alarming. It's significantly more than two or three. Now, why? What's gone on? Have all of a sudden uh, children just gotten much lazier? Maybe. Are parents just uh, feeding their children nonstop, which they weren't doing 30, 40, 50 years ago? What are the health implications of this epidemic of childhood obesity? And is this new class of obesity drugs, is this a panacea that is going to solve the world's obesity problems? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I appreciate you listening. And this is an issue that we focused on for quite some time. And obviously, as a citizen, it's easy to focus on this. But as a new father, I certainly want my child to have a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, he's only two years old, but uh, seems to be of a healthy body weight. I certainly hope that continues. But even more so, even if you're not a father, even if you're not a parent or a grandparent, if you're a taxpayer, if you're paying insurance premiums and you see the sheer amount of obesity and obesity lifestyle related costs that are being eaten up, pardon the pun, by all of these things in terms of Medicare, in terms of health insurance, in terms of your tax dollars, 
you have to demand something is done about this. Somebody who has been doing something about this for literally decades is Dr. Marion Nessel. She is a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health emeritus at New York University. She's the author of a wide range of books about the politics of food, nutrition, health, and even the environment, including Eat, Drink, Vote, an illustrated guide to food politics, and several others as well. Dr. Nessel, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. Oh, glad to be here. So, Dr. Nessel, you do spell your name N-E-S-T-L-E. A lot of folks will draw the comparison between uh, Nestle's Quick or Nestle's Hot Chocolate. And even if it's pronounced uh, differently, they'll say, oh, maybe this is someone that's uh, trying to uh, repair her family's reputation for all of the junk food that their family has been peddling over the years. Are you any relation to the Nestle Quick family? Alas, no. Um, but I've certainly been accused of being the black sheep of the family. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. All right. Uh, let's talk about childhood obesity. How bad is the problem with childhood obesity in America these days? Well, it's bad and it's getting worse. Um, and I thought your description of class pictures was a really poignant one because I would say that my class pictures and my kids' class pictures, there wasn't anybody in the, or maybe one poor child who was the butt of millions of um, tauntings and bullying. But now kids are, I mean, somebody looks malnourished if they're at a healthy weight, if they're a kid. And I think the reasons for this are you know, pretty easy to explain. Smartphones, um, concerns by parents that if their kids are outside by themselves, they're going to get kidnapped. Um, and junk food, and a society in which it has become acceptable not to eat three meals a day, but to eat all day long and to eat mm. snacks all day long. Um, and, you know, if I had one suggestion, it's, you know, I mean, when my kids were little and when I was little, um, parents would say, go out and play and don't come back until dinner time. That's not the case anymore. We live in a very, very different society. And so kids are under house arrest. They've got phones to keep them busy, and they're not expending very many calories while they're on those phones. Um, and they're eating junk food all day long. It's been it's pretty easy to understand what happened. You know, uh, it, we've spoken a lot about the um, the trend of parents over the last few decades to to hover and to not give their children the uh, the independence that previous generation of children, uh, pre previous generations of children have had. And I think it's not only bad for them physically, potentially uh, psychologically as well, to never feel like you're really on your own and being able to do anything. But whenever I've talked about this on the radio, uh, inevitably a couple of folks will call in and say something to the effect of, oh, no, 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 it was safe to do that when you were growing up or when your parents were growing up. It's not safe to do that now. Someone's going to come along and, and snatch your nine-year-old if they're playing outside on the street by themselves or with other nine-year-olds. Is there any truth to that? Is a nine-year-old going to get snatched? 
No, the the parents of the nine-year-old are going to be reported to the police for (laughs) neglecting their child is what's happened. There's very, very little evidence that kids are less safe now than they were, um, except maybe to gun violence, which is the one thing that's increased enormously. Um, But the psychology of parents is that it's not safe. And if they feel that it's not safe, then everybody feels that it's not safe. I mean, the idea that you have to organize groups to walk kids to school is just astounding to me. My kids Kids walked to school by themselves when they were little, but that was a long time ago, and the society has changed. Um, now, if you let, as I was, at, at, when I was eight years old, I was allowed to take subways by myself in New York City. I mean, that's certainly, you don't see eight-year-olds on the subway by themselves. Everybody yeah, it, on the subway would be really upset if they saw a single eight-year-old. And yet I went to piano lessons. I went to wander around the city. I did anything I wanted when I was eight years old and and older. Um, But society has changed, and I think we need to change it back and do something to make kids more independent. I certainly would love to see the rubber band snap back a little bit in a more, what I consider a more sane direction, because a parent of a nine or 10 year old that allows their child to take the train or the ferry by themselves, as you said, uh, they're viewed as uh, neglectful or, or worse. But the, the problem with uh, children and obesity, they're not just overweight because they aren't exercising, right? I mean, there is something with, with respect to the food they're consuming that makes them more likely to be overweight these days, isn't there? Well, I think there are several things about the food. It's what the food is, it's how often they're eating it, and how much they're eating of it. Um, And there's no question, there's just an enormous amount of evidence that kids are fed junk food, that they eat multiple times a day, not just three meals, um, and that they eat in very large portions. Um, So they're taking in more calories. That's, you know, I think it's body weight is very simple. It's a matter of calorie balance. And if you eat more calories than you expend in physical activity, you're going to gain weight. You know, I mean, there are, seen... there are minor differences in foods, but really, if you're eating a lot of junk food, and we now know that junk foods, now they're called ultra-processed foods, encourage people to take in more calories, and not, and they don't realize this. I mean, that's now been shown. And so if you're eating a lot of these kinds of foods where once you start eating, you can't stop, you're going to be taking in more calories than you need or that are good for you. We've seen over the last three decades or so, uh, the tobacco companies in a lot of people's minds look like the bad guys and uh, their efforts to do things like um, use cartoons like Joe Camel to get kids smoking at a very young age are rightly excoriated by uh, all aspects of polite society. We have not seen the same widespread acceptance of villainization of 
the food industry. But if you look at what the food industry has done in terms of marketing, they're spending $2 billion a year marketing things like sugary breakfast cereals, potato chips, uh, chicken nuggets, chicken fingers, sugary drinks, fried foods, candy and sweets. Um, what role is the food industry itself playing in getting kids hooked on junk food? Well, I think it's really important to understand that food companies are not social service agencies and they're not public health agencies. They're businesses. Their job is to produce profits and grow those profits every 90 days and keep their stockholders happy. That's their job. And that's what they do. So they're in the so they're in the business of selling more food. Their job is to sell as much food as possible at as high a profit as possible. And they're really good at it. That's what they do. And yes, marketing to children is part of that. I once heard, I was once at a meeting at the White House, actually, where I heard a food industry executive say, I wish we could stop marketing to children. I don't think it's right, but our stockholders won't let us stop. Wow. 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 And, and, wow, you know, indeed. In other countries, my understanding is when children are watching a Saturday morning cartoon or uh, their equivalent of Sesame, Sesame Street, they don't allow uh, commercials for junk food or really anything. Is the United States somewhat unique in terms of allowing television advertising to children? I'm not sure about that. I don't know what the rules are. They vary in um, in every country. But I know that in the United States, when the Federal Trade Commission attempted to put curbs on television marketing of junk foods to kids, and we're talking now about 1979, um, Congress was so outraged at the thought that advertising could be restricted that they passed a law that said that the Federal Trade Commission could not put any restrictions on television marketing to children. So those restrictions are voluntary in the United States, and companies can voluntarily mm. not pay any attention to them. Wow. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. Marion Nessel. She's a, a professor emeritus at uh, NYU and uh, a molecular biologist, also the author or co-editor of uh, 15 books, many of them uh, prize winning. Uh, Dr. Nessel, what about the role of lobbyists. Uh, we think of lobbyists when it comes to um, the military industrial complex. We think of lobbyists when it comes to things like oil. I don't know that lobbyists are at the forefront of a lot of our listeners' mind when it comes to food. What role are food lobbyists playing in all this? Well, their job is to make sure that the government doesn't pass any regulation that might uh, reduce their profits. Again, they're businesses. They behave like any other business. And so they pay vast numbers, thousands, literally thousands of lobbyists to work Congress and meet with congressional staff and convince Congress that no regulation should do anything to restrict what they're marketing because their products are healthy, their products don't do any harm, and anybody who says so is wrong. And besides, they have the right to do all this because of the First Amendment, um, which allows them freedom of speech, so they can say anything they want about their products. 
And in terms of high fructose corn syrup, that's uh, relatively new in terms of being in everything. These days, if you look at the food label on anything, it is in almost everything. It's in bread, it's in drinks, it's in salads, it's in salad dressings, it's in everything, even a lot of foods that you've historically considered healthy. The defenders of high fructose corn syrup say this is a substance that's been unfairly villainized. Where do you come down on the issue of high fructose corn syrup? Well, it used to be a much cheaper form of sugar. Um, I mean, it contains, it has exactly the same chemical composition as table sugar, except that the two sugars that are in table sugar, glucose and fructose, are together in table sugar and split in the high fructose corn syrup, but in the body they all get split. So essentially it's sugar. It used to be cheaper. One of the great ironies of what's happened in the food supply is that Uh, an astonishing percentage of corn in the United States now goes to make ethanol for fuel for automobiles. And Mm -hmm. that has raised the price of high fructose corn syrup. So it's not that much cheaper than sugar anymore. Um, So I think we'll, we'll be seeing sugar going back into products, but basically it's the same calories. Are things better Overall, are things better or worse than in 2002 when you wrote um, your book that kind of changed the conversation about this food politics? Have things gotten better or worse or stayed the same over the last two decades? Well, I think it depends on which things you're talking about. Mm. If you're talking about obesity, it's gotten worse. If you're talking about understanding of the food industry's role, in obesity and other kinds of health problems, I think it's gotten better. Many, many people understand that food marketing is not there to for entertainment or because um, it's giving them information about products. It's there to get them to eat more. And once you understand that, and once you understand the business imperatives, it's not that the food industry is trying to make people gain weight. They just want people to buy more food. Just We're seeing of their product. Buy more products. Uh, eating less is very, very bad for business. Well, one of the things that we've seen big food concerned about in recent months publicly, this has been written about, is the rise of these anti-obesity drugs like uh, Ozempic and Munjara and that whole class of, uh, of drugs which folks are considering a game changer. Now, they say they're projecting these drugs within a few years may be the best selling drugs of all time, not in the billions in terms of revenue, but potentially uh, eventually into the trillions in terms of revenue for the drug companies. The food industry is saying they're concerned about what this could mean for their bottom line. Where do you come down on these obesity drugs? Is this the solution to the problem that we've been talking about? Well, if you think that taking a lifetime drug is a solution to any problem, you're going to think so. Um, And if you are so enormously overweight and you've tried during your entire life to lose weight and haven't been able to, these drugs could help a lot. Um, you know, they're a tool in the general armamentarium of what to do. Um, I think the jury is still out. 
on what on, on the role that these drugs are going to play because they do have side effects. There's some evidence that people don't want to take them for very long and that they have to be taken throughout life um, for them to continue to keep weight down. What's interesting, I mean, there are a lot of really interesting things about them. Um, one is they seem to reduce people's desire for food. So people aren't as hungry and they're not, or they aren't as obsessed. Their symptoms of addiction to food, if that's the right word to use, seem to be lessened. They don't think about it all the time. They don't have any trouble eating less. They lose weight. Um, that's really interesting. Um, but how long you can take them and how many people can take them. And there's an enormous argument about how young people can be when they start mm. taking them. Um, you know, that I, I think we just don't know enough about them yet. But we're going to find out pretty soon because lots of people are taking them and lots of people are studying them. I think a lot of people may hear our conversation and they may be inspired to some sort of action or activism to try to do something about this. Whereas in other areas of uh, public policy, it becomes clear what they need to be doing or what they need to push for. When it comes to big food, people may not necessarily be as clear. If people are looking to do something about this, either in terms of their own lives, their children and grandchildren's lives, or as a voter, what can and they and should they be doing? Well, I think we need to change election campaign laws so that our elected officials are free of politics and aren't beholden to corporations. And then we could start thinking about passing some legislation that would put some restrictions on marketing, especially marketing to children. But we can't really do that until we have uh, legislators who are free of corporate interest. We need to get corporations out of politics. Um, How you go about doing that? Hard to know. I say pick an issue and find an organization working on it. Join that organization and work with them. There are loads of organizations working on food issues. All you have to do is type in food advocacy and the name of the community that you live in, and they'll just pop up. They're everywhere. And a lot of them are doing really good work. Food advocacy, as far as you're concerned, though, and the concern about childhood obesity in particular, this is not a left or a right issue. I mean, you could be super left wing or super right wing and still want to do something about this, right? You could, although it turns out to be a Democratic rather than a Republican issue. Um, It's interesting that concerns about, I mean, first of all, we don't have a federal campaign to try to prevent obesity in children. There is no such campaign. Um, And there's no real attempt to try to organize one, I think, because they would have to take on the food industry. Mm. And that's a big job. Um, It turns out that concerns about health split along party lines, just like everything else splits along party lines these days. Um, You know, I think about Michelle Obama during the Obama administration, who picked school food as an issue that she wanted to work on, thinking that it would be a bipartisan issue. Doesn't everybody want kids to eat healthfully in schools? It turned out that was not the case. Well, that's a a real shame. Uh, I'll I'll end with this, uh, Dr. Nessel. If people are 
parents and uh, they're concerned about how to make sure their their child is not a part of the uh, growing obesity epidemic other than what you just alluded to making sure they get outside in play and making sure they're not glued to their smartphone all day what what advice would you give to parents or even individuals as to how they can be a part of the solution on this rather than a part of the problem well, I think you vote with your fork, and that means, um, you know, you want to keep junk food out of the house. Stop buying. You don't want your kids eating junk food? Don't buy it. Don't have it in the house. You can't control what your kids eat outside of the house, but you can control what your kids eat inside the house, and you stop buying ultra-processed foods, or you buy them in such small amounts that they're not going to do any harm. Starting with sugar-sweetened beverages, because those contribute to overweight very, very easily. They're calories and no nutrients and, you know, have things other than sugar-sweetened beverages for your kids to drink. Um, this is not going to be easy in the current society, but it's well worth starting on. And good luck to everybody. Dr. Marion Nessel, uh, you could check out uh, several of her books. Just uh, go to Amazon or wherever you get your books, N-E-S-T-L-E. And uh, there is there are memoirs. There are all sorts of books about food politics and all sorts of, book of books about nutrition, including for pets, by the way, that you can uh, check out. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you. I did, too. Glad to be here. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. My number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. chilly yesterday it was frigid it was one of those days where walking from the car to the house or vice versa or versa visa just you 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 feel frozen I had to go to the bank yesterday i was really chilly just walking around uh this is a, a birthday bumper music selection from marissa Pruss. Marissa Pruss is an old friend of mine. I have not seen her in decades, but, uh, you know, we were we were pretty friendly uh, many years ago. And uh, she had a different name when I knew her. She's happily married and so forth now. So now she's Marissa Pruss. So happy birthday, Marissa. And uh, thank you for the Beach Boys selection, because sometimes when it's this frigid out, uh, it really does help to think 
cool, meaning to think that it's hot out and that you need a cool mentality. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything we're talking about. Very exciting day here at the uh, Red Apple Radio Network because today... We are having our company Christmas party. That should be a lot of fun. Hey, Tony, you going to this uh, Christmas party tonight? Yeah, I plan on being there. You plan it? What time does it start? Six, Six right? o'clock, yeah. Six o'clock. That's good because it's still, you know, I mean, obviously I hate to leave early to not uh, put my son uh, to bed, but um, it gives me plenty of time to hang out with everybody, have a good time, and then still plenty of time to work on the show. And I'll be here. I'll be able to work on the show. Hopefully, that'll be fun. I have one other, um, a couple of other errands that I have to run um, before the show starts, but that's good. I really look forward to these uh, gatherings with our staff because, unlike the people that uh, work all the other shifts, we really don't get to see everybody. So it's not unusual for me to be getting emails from people, uh, this person, that person, that I've never met because we're just not here during the day. We live, we have our own kind of nocturnal lifestyle. So whenever there's something where we come in a little bit earlier and uh, the people that work here during the day stay a little later, it's, um, it's, it's always a nice thing to be able to meet some of your actual colleagues. So that'll be fun. I'll look forward to that. 800-848-9222. Uh, Charles is in Queens. Hi, Charles. Hi, hi. I want to make some comments regarding uh, losing weight, dieting, food, stuff like that. I'm 75 years old right now. Uh, I've been battling, battling the bulge my whole life. But I guess my mother used to feed me a lot. One, because she loved me, I guess. And two, because children in Europe are starving. So if I ate, I guess they stopped starving. I don't know. But anyways, I've been fighting, losing and gaining weight. Now, what I found, and I've been in all types of diets, when I was 19 years old, that's uh, 55, whatever it is, years ago, yes, 56 years ago, I went to an Atkins diet, and it was very difficult. But when I was 49, 26 years ago, I lost 192 pounds. 192, five years, two and a half weeks, to be accurate. I recorded everything that I ate. And the Atkins diet is very difficult. However... Your guest said calories is calories. It's sort of true, but if you're going to be on very low carbs, very low, you're going to lose 25, 20 to 30 percent quicker. Charles, I'm going to give you the last word there. Uh, I got to run just because uh, we're up against the clock here. I hate that expression. I hate when radio people use it, but it happens to be true. Keep asking questions.